Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show, everybody. Today is Friday, September 29th. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have uh, Erica, Tiffany, Doug, and Elliot. Hey, guys. Hello. 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 Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> we are missing Gabby today, so we wish her well uh, and hope to see her next week. Um, so today, our topic, uh, we're going to connect some dots. Uh, iron, brown fat, depression, and tattoos. Uh, so if those things sound unrelated, uh, they are not, albeit loosely related, but we are, uh, we are going to run through, uh, those topics. Um, we, uh, we wanted to talk about iron overload, uh, because that's, uh, that's a very little discussed, uh, health risk that I think a lot of people don't know about, as well as brown fat versus white fat, uh, what the difference is, uh, and, and how you can understand you know, how to increase brown fat. Um, and it may not even be something that you've heard of before. Uh, for people who have been into like cold therapy and stuff, I'm sure that you've heard of brown fat, but I, I don't think it's commonly understood. Mm. Um, so, uh, and then uh, tattoos, uh, we wanted to talk, we had a couple articles that came up uh, these last couple of weeks about tattoos. So we wanted to cover that as well. So our, um, our challenge for today's show, will whoever comes up the, with the most creative segue to join all of these <laughs> topics together wins a prize. What's the prize? Pride. Uh, stick on tattoo. Pride in knowing. <laughs> stick on tattoo want. of brown fat <laughs> made of iron that causes Doug depression. Well, let's uh, let's get into iron because that's one that's that, that I think is interesting, and I have to be completely honest. I have never paid attention to iron levels in my body, and I, mm-hmm. I, w- I would assume that most people are like, "What? You know, what are you talking about?" Like, it, you understand that you have iron in your body, but you just don't think of it as being something uh, that could hurt you. Yeah, or if, if pe- the people do think about it, they probably tend to think of low iron mm-hmm. because sure. anemia. Yeah, yeah, anemia. You know that, that yeah. seems to be the more popularized um, thing about iron is that you know some people are are kind of not not having enough. But um, yeah, it turns out that uh, iron overload is actually a much bigger problem than too little iron, which is probably surprising for a lot of people because uh, there's all kinds of uh, well, I, I shouldn't say there's all kinds, but there are some doctors out there who recognize this fact and are very critical of the mainstream medical community for not kind of recognizing the dangers of iron overload. You know, iron is just kind of thought of as this sort of innocuous thing that if you're low, you just take a supplement of it. You know, they put it into foods to uh, fortify foods. It's in pretty much every multivitamin out there, except for ones that are specifically made without iron. Uh, men's mm-hmm. multivitamins tend to not have iron in them, but but yeah, they just kind of throw it into everything sort of willy-nilly and say, oh, get your iron. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the fact is it's actually, it could be quite dangerous. Yeah, well, and it can interact too. Like if you have uh, specifically hemochromatosis, uh, which is an iron overload, right, uh, simplistically put, um, that uh, it can interact with vitamin C, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, if, if you think of, um, if you just think of like an iron bar, uh, what would happen if you left it outside in the rain? Um, fairly quickly, it would rust, um, and that is how reactive iron is with oxygen. Sure. Um, it's you know it's such a reactive thing that it is responsible for creating 
uh, lots of havoc <laughs> in the human body, you know. Uh, and it's it's a big problem if you're a person who tends to accumulate iron because mm-hmm. it depends on how well you can you can excrete it. Some people can excrete it really well, other people can't. Um, and I think if you're someone who tends towards um, constipation, then you're probably more likely to um, to hold on to that iron. And there's also like we'll talk about all of the sort of genetic polymorphisms and things that come with that. But it kind of comes down to your genes as well, because many of us have hemochromatosis genes, whether it's uh, the full set of genes or whether it's just one allele or something. Mm. Um, and so this unfortunately predisposes a lot of us to, uh, to accumulate excess iron when it doesn't really need to be there. Mm-hmm. And it's more common in adult men and postmenopausal women. So premenopausal women, they have their monthly period, so they can discharge a lot of iron in their menstrual blood. But uh, if you don't menstruate every month, then you're at risk of having iron overload. And there were some sources that I read where they said that uh, iron cannot be excreted, but it's not quite the case. I mean, there's a phlebotomy where you can have blood donations a few times a year and get rid of some excess iron. But there's also detoxification. I think uh, curcumin, curcumin, curcumin. Yeah. curcumin <laughs> or, yeah. oral EDTA or activated charcoal can also be used to get mm-hmm. rid of excess iron. DMSA works as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Clay to bentonite clay. Uh, yeah. 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 So there are a few different detox methods that a lot of the things that actually are used to remove heavy metals from the body and detox protocols will also remove iron. And, you know, that that's actually a platform on which some mainstream people will say why metal detoxes are dangerous because they actually will pull iron out as well. And it's like, well, in a lot of cases, that's actually a good you'd rather, So you could say you'd rather err on the side of anemia? <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but there, there there is a couple of things about anemia is that, you know, it's something that people commonly hear about, iron deficiency anemia. Well, a lot of times the anemia may not actually be iron deficiency related. It may be diagnosed as iron deficiency anemia, um, but sometimes the way that they diagnose that is simply by an examination of the red blood cells. Um, And there's lots of different things that can affect whether someone is producing healthy red blood cells. It could be folate, it could be vitamin B12, it could be thyroid. It, I mean, it could be any number of things that can affect how well you produce sort of well-formed um, oxygenated blood cells. And so if, if someone is not producing these, these, uh, these cells, then they may, they may get diagnosed with iron deficiency anemia and put on an iron supplement. And there's quite often, uh, you know, I know of several people who've actually been diagnosed with iron deficiency anemia and who've been put on iron supplements and nothing gets better. Um, they don't miraculously cure their anemia because it's not necessarily iron that they're deficient in. It's the fact that they can't make the blood cells. They can't incorporate it into their blood cells. So this is another thing with the whole, you know, iron deficiency stuff. I think it's probably so much less common than than anyone would think, you know. Yeah, yeah and that yeah. happens frequently because I've seen doctors diagnose someone with iron deficiency anemia just by looking at their red blood cell count. And they just say, oh, tell them to take 325 milligrams of iron a day. And that's it. And they yeah. don't follow up at all. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, when I was working in a health food store, I would have uh, usually women coming in um, sometimes uh, looking for iron supplements. And I would always be like, well, you know, did you get a, di- a diagnosis for like low iron or anything? Even though I knew that that wasn't necessarily like, you know, a gold standard or anything like that. But I was kind of like, well, let's just make sure here that, you know, but the number of people who are just kind of, well, you know, I'm, I'm low in energy. So uh, my friend told me that I should take iron. It's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> That's a terrible idea. As yeah. I, and I would always just kind of explain to them, listen, you have to find out why you're low in energy. You just can't start taking like especially iron, you know, there are some innocuous substances or or supplements that you could take that wouldn't be a big deal. Um, But uh, definitely not iron. You don't want to just take that just because you heard it from a friend. Well, especially in a health store, too, you would have all the vegetarians, right? So they're, like, chronically anemic. Yeah. And that's that's more likely due to uh, B12 deficiency or even folate. Yeah. And I always used to just take blackstrap molasses for iron. You guys know if that's good? I mean, because I was anemic for a long time when I was a vegetarian. <laughs> but I never I took the supplements it. because they, they <laughs> did cause massive constipation. <laughs> yeah. I would think the only issue there would be the glycemic index, right, of, of molasses. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. lower, but it's still there, right? Yeah. That's true. So, uh... Do we know, like, kind of what general percentage of these iron overload cases actually turn out to be either fatal or extremely damaging? Or do you think the statistics are kind of skewed because it's not so well understood? Somebody might be diagnosed, you know, with something else when they may have iron overload. I think that definitely well, some of the statistics on, on the hemochromatosis, which Jonathan mentioned, was like um, one in every three, like 100 million people, and I don't know if that's just in the U.S. or mm-hmm. worldwide. Right. Yeah. I guess what I mean is, like, uh, to put it simply, how dangerous is it? That's that's what I'm wondering. You know, like, I know that it has um, dangerous side effects, but it's something that uh, yeah. you more want to be careful about and less, like, super, Definitely. you know, afraid of or concerned with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it, it if if it's left untreated, um, it can contribute to all kinds of things like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, um, gouty arthritis. There's like there's there's lots of different problems that it can cause, and the problem is that it's masked, right? Like you know, right. if anybody's undergoing any kind of treatment for cancer, heart disease, etc., you know, in very very rare cases would somebody actually think to check iron. So, uh, unfortunately it's kind of left up to the individual to kind of test their own iron levels to find out how, how they're doing. Sure. Um, what you basically want to do is a test for serum uh, ferritin levels and um, kind of correlate that with uh, something called a GGT, um, which is a, a liver enzyme uh, that's correlated with um, iron toxicity. Sure. And there's actually a, a pretty good article by Marcola that's up on SOT called Serum Ferritin and GGT, two important markers of iron and liver toxicity. And um, in that article, he kind of goes into a, a description of, of kind of why these tests are important and what uh, um, what the numbers mean. Yeah. But are these yeah, something, yeah. this is something you can do, like you can order a, a blood panel or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's um it's just on any basic blood panel. If you just get a full blood count, um, it will test for your iron, which usually contains, uh, which usually 
is sort of made up of serum ferritin and then iron. Um, so you get two different markers there. And then it, when it tests your liver enzymes, it will test like the basic ones like a, um, is it AL, ALP or AST and stuff. ALT but then we'll, AST. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it will also test um, this, this GGT. And so GGT, um, it stands for gamma glutamyl transferase. And so basically this is an enzyme which is used um, when glutathione stores are low. So it's like a measure of um, of how much glutathione is being used up in your body. So when you've got high GGT, it's a good measure that basically a lot of your glutathione stores are being used up um, fighting off free radicals. So basically high GGT means high free radical damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's, it's correlated with things like liver toxicity and iron toxicity and all of this stuff. Um, and ideally, you would want low GGT levels because that would mean that you've got plentiful uh, glutathione stores and you're not you're not deficient in any way. Sure. Um, of course, it's a bit more nuanced than that, but that's a fair measure. Interestingly, yeah. like after after I read because I, I wasn't aware of this sort of uh, connection. But so I read I read this article that we're talking about on Mercola. And yeah. he talks about um, the optimal GGT levels. What was it? I think he said optimal is like between 14 and 17 or something like that. And so I checked mine out and mine are 20. Um, mm. So I was kind of happy about that. I was thinking, yeah, that's not too bad. Because when you look <laughs> at it, some people are like up to 70. Um, oh. And that's considered normal. So uh, just to give oh. some background, the normal the the normal GGT levels, like what a doctor would read and think, oh, this is okay, um, is 70 um, UL, uh, so units per liter. So if you go get a blood test and you see that your GGT is 70, that's probably not good, but it's still considered normal. Mm. Um, whereas he says that the optimal level is less than 16. Um, and so, yeah, so you can test that out. Um, and then you can correlate that with other markers of your blood. So he says that if you've got high serum ferritin um, and then you've got high GGT, then the chances are that you've you've got iron overload, I think. I think that's what he was saying. If you've got high GGT or high serum ferritin? Uh, high GGT and and high serum ferritin. Was that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I checked my ferritin out as well, and it's not particularly high. So <laughs> I'm in the clear. But, uh, so but it's worth checking out. your glutathione. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of other things probably. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> but you should be able a... to go to a doctor and just get the test. It's fairly basic. Is, is supplementing glutathione one of those things kind of like uh, GABA, where you know if you take the capsule, it doesn't really do that much for you? I haven't heard anything bad about supplementing glutathione. I've taken it okay. myself and haven't really noticed anything. But the Same form, period. the form is very important. I know that. Mm. Like you know, the, there's there was um, controversy for a while that people taking glutathione as a supplement it wasn't doing anything because your body was just you know your stomach would just break it down or your digestive system would just break it down and uh, so you weren't getting actual glutathione into the system. But I mean, you're still right. getting all the uh, constituent parts for glutathione. So sure. Sure. I think uh, they, a, a lot of that, I think, came from the people who are making, um, what's it called, the liposomal glutathione, 
which, uh, you know, gets into, because it's in the liposomal form, which is basically like a fat soluble form, um, it was getting through um, the digestive tract whole. So you're kind of uh, getting exact, like, you know, glutathione right into the system. But Liposomal um, anything is better, right? Well, Barely. yeah. The idea is that it's much more absorbable that way. Sure. Um, so, but I don't, I don't think that that necessarily means that non-liposomal glutathione is useless. Mm. Yeah, because you do find glutathione in, in foods as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, like Doug said, you know, glutathione is basically just a, it's a tripeptide, which means it's made up of three different amino acids. One is glycine, the other is glutamine, and the other is cysteine. So technically, if you consume glutathione, you're going to break down those that substance into its amino acids, and then you will absorb those amino acids, and hopefully you would then be able to resynthesize the glutathione. Yeah, um, the same make, thing so. as taking like N-acetylcysteine and, and things like, yeah. little, like, you know, the constituent parts of uh, glutathione. Like precursors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Does anybody yeah, know? I mean, like, Go ahead, Jonathan. Oh, I was just going to say like for dopamine, you want to take L-tyrosine, right, which is a precursor. So it'll stimulate to make dopamine. Yeah. 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 It's basically like with the glutathione, if you take uh, N-acetylcysteine, it's kind of like making sure your body has the raw materials to make uh, sure. glutathione. Sure. Sorry, Tiff, what were you going to say? Does anybody know anybody who actually has hematochromatosis? I yes. don't. Yeah. How do they look? Um, well, because they're addressing it, they look okay. Huh. Yeah. I, I, know, I know several people who've gone to uh, get tested because um, just to make sure. And um, I know a few people who were kind of, you know, they weren't super high, but they were kind of like borderline or something. So they're like, okay, well, maybe I'll give blood a couple of times and, and just kind of keep it under control. So, Well, back when we were first reading about hematochromatosis and iron overload, I had a patient who actually had it. Hmm. And it was shocking to see him. He looked so bad. Of course, he was an alcoholic and huh. he was recently rehomed after being homeless for a number of years but he was so i can't even describe well they call it like a brown bronzy type of skin color but he was Mm. so bronzed it was just shocking to see he looked awful not that he was that good looking of a person to begin with but his skin was just awful and i talked to his doctor and recommended phlebotomy regularly and they wouldn't do it. Really? <laughs> wow. That just comes back to how the medical community just doesn't recognize yeah. this. It's like it, I mean, did they even ask you why? Well, they knew that he had this. Yeah. And it's like they didn't know that that was something that could be done. Mm. It's like they, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't. Wow. Is that it? Because he was an is alcoholic. That a thing? Yeah, that's not going to help either. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a thing that you find that, uh, that that doctors are generally dismissive of nurses' opinions? Uh, the arrogant ones, but uh, the, sure. good doctors, <laughs> the good doctors always pay attention to what the nurses say because we're with the patients more than they are. Mm. Right. Yeah. I wonder if Trump has hemochromatosis. <laughs> well, funny enough, uh, I know um, I was reading that uh, alcohol actually will increase the absorption of iron. Mm-hmm. So if you're having like a steak dinner and you have a glass of red wine with it, you're actually increasing the amount of iron that you're taking in. So I wonder if it's more common among alcoholics. 
Well, I mean, I yeah, and if, you, if you're an alcoholic for real, then it would be off the charts, right? Because you're consuming every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and like, chronic consumption of alcohol also depletes you of so many different cofactors that you need to um, sort of protect the iron stores in your body anyway. Like, it mm. depletes you of all sorts of B vitamins, uh, specifically B6, I think. And so... Um, if you consider that and then you look at the antioxidant system, um, you, you take into consideration that iron is a, is a real strong pro-oxidant. So what it means is, is that it's really, really susceptible to oxidation in the body. Um, and then you look at the fact that alcohol depletes you of all of the cofactors that you need to make antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Then it's, it's kind of no wonder why alcohol can be so damaging um, when it's when it's taken in such large quantities over a period of time, yeah, yeah is that why you you that also name. see that that um, psoriasis? That was called psoriasis. Sure, cirrhosis. Liver cirrhosis. Oh, thank cir- you. Cirrhosis. Yeah. <laughs> well, cirrhosis too. I mean, uh, from a certain extent, because if you overconsume uh, beer or wine, then you're getting essentially you're you're going to give yourself an internal yeast infection. Hmm. And get skin problems and stuff. I've seen that. Yeah. Well, yeah. when your skin has to take over detoxing jobs from the liver, that's never a good sign. Yeah. Right. So you so, can. Um, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, from a, from a layman's perspective, all of this is like, I guess, kind of intimidating. You know, because mm-hmm. you you wouldn't. That, that's why most people take the opinion of their doctor because they're. They either don't have the time to or are intimidated by doing the research and finding out some facts themselves that they can either bring to their doctor, you know, or change their habits, you know, to achieve a certain end. But I think for most people, when you bring up the fact that iron overload could could hurt you and now you need to do some nebulous things that you might not understand. Like if you tell somebody to get a blood panel, you know, I could see them just being like, what? How do I Mm. do that? (laughs) So I I think it's interesting because it's one of those conditions where, not only is it not well understood, but people in general are probably not going to be self-motivated to learn more about it, especially when you have, you know, giant things like cancer that people are worrying about, even though that's connected. Yeah. Yeah, they find high amounts of iron in cancerous breasts. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know what you mean, though, Jonathan. It is it is kind of a tricky one. It's like, you know, I, I haven't had a blood panel done, and I, pro- I, I know that I should, but... Um, it is it is kind of like daunting in a certain way. It's kind of like, especially for somebody who's like kind of a holistic practitioner. It's like, wow, well, I'm not going to go to the medical system and get any <laughs> testing done. Uh, bullshit. Right. But um, not that I ever thought it was bullshit. But anyway, um, it kind of it's just not on my radar. So um, yeah. I know it is something that I should do and um, something that I plan to do in the future. But um, yeah, it's tricky, especially if somebody doesn't necessarily have anything apparently wrong with them. You know, it's kind of like, well, why would I do that? I'm healthy. But the thing about this is that, you know, if you do have hemochromatosis, which is like a, a genetic tendency to absorb too much iron or not be able to excrete that iron, um, it, it's not, it can, it can really sneak up on you. Like, it's not something that you're necessarily going to notice. Um, you know, just the, sure. the story of the person who's like totally healthy and then all of a sudden one day has a heart attack. Well, that could be from having iron overload and just not recognizing it. Well, here are some. Yeah, it makes me think of that guy. Uh... Oh, sorry, Tiff. Fatigue, depression, arthritis, irregular heart rate, uh, increased blood sugar level or diabetes, shortness of breath, swelling in your abdomen, feet and ankles. 
jaundice, decreased sex drive, premature menopause, decreased body hair, shriveled testicles, hypothyroid, and redness in your palms. Like all of those things can be attributed to other things. So it's not like if you have any of those, you're going to automatically think, oh, I have too much iron. Yeah, yeah. that's true. It's like I have swollen ankles. Well, I guess that's just my thing. <laughs> well, especially like you said, Tiffany, if the doctors aren't recognizing it or even addressing it. Yeah, exactly. Well, and Doug, I think you brought up an important point about the appearance. Um, it's just like that guy. It makes me think of the guy who uh, I believe he wrote the Runner's Encyclopedia, um, who was a, oh. a very famous runner, right? And yeah. he was super healthy. Since he dropped dead running yeah. in Central Park, and they found that his arteries were just like clogged shut completely. Because mm. um, I think he was uh, also a vegetarian or a vegan, yeah, you know, an active runner. Yeah, I know who you're talking um, about. I don't remember his name, though, but yeah. Yeah. So things like that. I mean, you would see that guy in the street and be like, oh, he looks great. Mm-hmm. Actually held up as a model of healthiness. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's a distance f- runners don't look very healthy to me, though. No, it's Because <laughs> they're basically, like, catabolizing all their their muscle mass in order to get the energy to keep on running. So right. there's, you see the, the pictures floating around where they compare like a sprinter, yeah. the body of a sprinter to the body of like a marathon runner. And it's like the marathon runner is like a skeleton with like a bag of skin over it. Yeah. And then the yeah. sprinters are just like absolutely ripped, like huge. Yeah. Like, well, which type of exercise some... would you think is healthier? <laughs> it's it, it varies. I've actually been uh, – recently reading some stuff from a guy named Cameron Haynes, who you may or may not heard of. Um, he's a, a big guy in like the bow hunting world, but he also is a fitness guy and he runs ultra marathons, like Jesus. 200 miles. Uh. No, no joke for real. He actually runs a marathon a day to train. Oh my, oh my God. God. <laughs> yeah. do you do but that? He looks like a, like a heavy lifter. He looks, yeah. he's a big guy. He, and is he, he looks super healthy, and he's keto. Yes. Yeah, oh. keto. See, that's the difference. Yeah, that's the difference yeah. right there. I see <laughs> yeah. the guy who's run, like you know, who's won the ultra marathon for like the last three years running or something like that. This might have been a while ago, actually, but they interviewed him on um, what's his name's show, the uh, Living Living La Vida Low Carb. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> with, with Jimmy. What's his name? More. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, and he, he's uh, full keto and, and has won, like, the ultra marathon like, three years running or something like that because, uh, you know, if you've got yourself in fat metabolism, then it's, it's kind of like a whole new ball game. It's not, like, it's yeah. not the same thing at all. I wonder yeah. how much brown fat this guy has. <laughs> Good segue, hey, <laughs> That was great. Yay! <laughs> Uh, yeah, before we move on to that, I just oh, want to no. say some more things. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Denied. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. No, go ahead. No, go with it. No, I was just going to say that um, there are a couple ways, even if you're not diagnosed with hemochromatosis and your uh, your blood levels come back normal, then there's a good way to sort of check whether you um, whether you're sort of predisposed to that. Um, and so you can, if, if you've done genetic testing before, then you can just go onto your 23andMe account or whoever you've done your genetics with. You can look for um, 
there's a couple different genes that you could look for. One is on the C282Y position. Um, I'll, I'll post up the link on the chat. Um, but basically it's, it's on the HFE gene. And so if you've got, it will, it will tell you if you've got, um, any sort of polymorph, polymorphism or mutation in this gene. And so, um, I looked at my own and it turns out I actually do have it. Um, I, I have, I have, well, I have half, half of it. So I'm predisposed. It's the same for a lot of people of sort of Northern European ancestry. Mm. Um, and so if your ancestors, you know, your family come from Ireland or somewhere, there's a very possibility that you are a carrier. It may not necessarily affect you, but you, are very likely a carrier like I am myself. Um, so even if you don't have the full blown, um, like polymorphism, then it still means that you can, uh, develop hemochromatosis like symptoms. Um, and, and you do have a tendency to sort of accumulate more than ordinary people. Um, and so if you do that, then there are a couple steps that you should probably take. Uh, and that is to limit the amount of vitamin C that you're eating with iron iron-rich foods. Um, so vitamin C does increase the absorption of iron. And so, you know, if you're going to have like a bowl of spinach, don't drink it with, you know, a glass of vitamin C or with orange juice or something. That would be silly because you would be absorbing like so much more iron. There's another thing that I do in the morning <laughs> and that's uh, drink a big cup of coffee with my breakfast. Um, like Me 20 too. minutes before, if you drink coffee, not then you know <laughs> just don't have vitamin c with it but if you drink coffee then you know drink it with with your breakfast and uh that that basically prevents the absorption of the iron so that's a good sort of a uh, preventative measure measure that you could do if you get the blood tests and you do have higher high iron levels then you know just go like once or twice a year to get your blood um to donate your blood i mean there's there's Studies coming out that are basically suggesting that that is a healthy thing to do anyway, um, even if you don't have iron over overload. Uh, you know, it's good to get sort of things recycled in the system, and you know. Uh, so yeah, there are a couple recommendations. If yeah, mm. if that helps. Yeah, it does. <laughs> what yeah, about I cooking in cast iron? Is that something that shouldn't be practiced if you have iron overload using cast iron pans? Well, I had, I mean, there is, you can get iron from cast iron pans, it's true. <clears throat> and maybe if mm -hmm. you are in a, a really serious kind of iron overload uh, situation, you would want to avoid that, at least for a while, until you can kind of mm -hmm. get it under control. But the best advice that I read about it is that you shouldn't really try and control for your iron consumption unless they're, like, you know, obviously not taking iron supplements and things like that. Of course, you wouldn't want to do that. But it's really better to kind of deal with the iron overload in you know in other ways either through detox methods or phlebotomies or, or something like that because it's it's a really difficult thing to kind of control for i mean you know yeah cooking in a cast iron pan might give you like a little bit more iron not a hell of a lot but mm -hmm. a little bit more and um you know you could avoid red meat spinach all that kind of stuff but it's actually an easier thing to do to try and um actually just you know deal with it in other ways keep an eye on it um that sort of thing uh, and also, I'd just like to add a couple thoughts I've been having on this recently. Um, there's 
there's a couple of the articles that we read for this show. Um, one or two were talking about how the, the prevalence of iron overload or iron toxicity symptoms have been like gradually increasing. Um, and I've been thinking like, okay, so if, if we have, say, if my ancestors have always had this sort of polymorphism, this mutation, which means that they accumulate more iron, then was this such a problem for them or was it some sort of adaptation? Mm. Um, and for what reason is that? And I, I don't, I can't answer that question. I've been trying to get my head around it, but I can't find anything that would indicate why that would be the case. However, um, I've been thinking about why is it so damaging in like now these days. Um, and so if you look at what iron does in the body, it depletes vitamin E um, and it depletes loads of other antioxidants because it is just such a pro-oxidant substance. substance. So it will like when it's um, oxidized by something, it will cause something called a free radical cascade, which basically goes around stealing all sorts of electrons from all sorts of molecules in your body and just causing havoc. Um, and so one of the main things that iron targets when it's oxidized is polyunsaturated fats. Uh, and these, it causes, it produces, when it basically attacks these polyunsaturated fats, it produces these things called lipoperoxides. And so this means that you need so much more vitamin E to be able to essentially counteract the damage that has been caused. And so one of the only things that's changed in our recent history is that we've suddenly been, you know, um, producing all of these vegetable oils and feeding our animals grain products. And so our amount of uh, polyunsaturated fat consumption has just flown through the roof, mm. you know. And so mm. when, when, you, when you consume polyunsaturated fats, they are incorporated into your tissues. So, you know, when you store that belly fat, a lot of that is going to be um, unsaturated. And so that means that when, when you are consuming iron and a little bit goes, goes astray, then it's got lots of material to break down and cause lots of damage. Um, and so I, I tend toward thinking that maybe one of the reasons why iron overload um, is be really becoming such a problem uh, for people nowadays is because of all the polyunsaturated fats that are stored in our tissues. Mm. Um, and so there are a couple recommendations if someone does have iron overload. Um, and in fact, I mean, I do this myself anyway because I – uh, most of my life I consume loads of vegetable oils so one of them is just to consume a low dose vitamin E supplement um, and that's because vitamin E like uh, polyunsaturated fats and iron overload they do increase your need for vitamin E um, to sort of protect against the damaging effects and so that that might also be something to, to consider for a lot of people um, even though I don't have iron overload I still do uh, do low dose vitamin E so that you know that might help yeah cool I wonder um you were mentioning Elliot like you know why would we have kind of why would this adaptation have kind of shown up um and that made me think about um and maybe this is going a bit out on a limb here but uh the changing uh solar environment and how like the different kinds of light that we're exposed to now because as I was reading it actually um apparently Far infrared and near infrared will actually help to detox iron from the body, like actually help to, to get it out mm. in some way. And I don't know the exact mechanism behind that. But I wonder if, you know, 
the changing light environment might have had something to do with it. Like maybe if we were exposed to more infrared in the past, maybe uh, we needed more iron. Or those in that kind of climate, uh, a particular climate, maybe needed more iron, and that—that's why. I, saying it out loud makes me realize that this is maybe going out, <laughs> like you know, right out on a limb here. But uh, but I guess maybe it's a possibility. No, I think that's you know that's a great sort of uh, suggestion. You know, I think that I think you know when you've got these polymorphisms, you've got like MTHFR and you've got hemochromatosis and all of these different things. I. I can't imagine that they just happen by random chance, mm. you know. I, 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 something in me <laughs> doesn't like that idea. It just kind of thinks that, okay, I think this was probably beneficial for mm-hmm. someone at some point in time mm-hmm. as an adaptation, but now it, it's no longer useful, you know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, let's uh, let's d- give due credit to Tiffany's amazing segue. <laughs> <laughs> You should check for iron overload if you are a male Mm -hmm. who has a hard time putting on weight. Mm. And speaking of males (laughs) who have a hard time putting on weight, they probably have more brown fat. Uh, (laughs) That was good, too. I think think your other one was better. (laughs) I tried too hard on (laughs) <laughs> well, I was going to I was going to say in regards to your first one, we were talking about Cameron Haynes being keto. Uh, there is a uh, an NIH study: uh, ketogenic diet increases brown adipose tissue, mitochondrial proteins hmm. uh, in mice, of course. <laughs> but you know, yeah, you, a lot can, of the you can infer mice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it so, does make sense. I mean, uh, brown fat generally. Well, I suppose we should talk about what it is, right? Because uh, people may not necessarily be aware. But uh, it, my m- kind of rough interpretation of it is that uh, white fat stores stuff and brown fat produces energy. Is that too simple? I, I think that's the general gist of it, yeah. I mean, you know, for so long they've been kind of saying fat is bad, fat is bad. You don't want to accumulate any fat on your body. Well, not any, but... Well, actually, listening to the way the media talks about it, that is kind of the impression given. Yeah. But it turns out that it has a lot more to do with the type of fat and even the location of fat, but I don't think we're really going to get into that too much. But, uh, but yeah. Well, as opposed to white fat, brown fat has smaller droplets mm-hmm. of the lipids versus a big droplet in white fat. So they say, not that I ever looked at any in under a microscope, <laughs> <laughs> they say, and they have greater numbers of mitochondria. Yeah. So it was generally thought that people lose their brown fat as they get old. Uh, it's been known that babies have a lot of brown fat around their neck and shoulder area, and it helps to keep them warm. But uh, they're finding that even adults have brown fat, but the key is that it has to be activated in order to reap any weight loss benefits or sure things like that. One way to do that is the cold therapy. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Wim, Wim Hof. What about the jiggly machine? Does, does the jiggly oh, yeah. machine do it? I don't, I don't think the jiggly <laughs> machine is going to cut it. <laughs> well, I would but say guys, guys like, like uh, Wim Hof are yeah. oh, just like made, entirely made of brown fat. Like he doesn't even have muscle <laughs> tissue anymore. <laughs> no bones, nothing. He's just a big lump yeah. of brown fat. 
Yeah, How much of that is just pure willpower and nuttiness versus <laughs> yeah. the amount of brown fat that he has? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. It's a hard one. I mean, I've done I've done the cold baths and the showers, and but I, I have to be honest and say I've never done it on a regular basis. So I can't front and say that I really know personally. You know what I mean? I feel I think, great when I do it, despite yeah. the, the suffering. When you're done, it's like, wow, that was incredible. <laughs> well... Just to talk about, like when we were all experimenting with keto hmm. diets, and we're actually in ketosis, not just eating keto-friendly foods. <laughs> <laughs> but did you notice that you felt a lot warmer? Like usually, I'm like super, super cold. So I've been experimenting hmm. recently with going back into keto, and usually I complain that the air conditioning is on, but I didn't really complain about that this hmm. year, and yeah. I noticed that I get warm especially around my trunk area and I get hot at night at some point during the night and have to take the blankets off of me hmm. and the same thing well, happened would... when I was doing cold therapy yeah. so I think it, they are correct when they say that brown fat generates heat hmm. not that I noticed any weight loss from it, but I was <laughs> nice and warm and snuggly well, I wonder <laughs> if that could be an explanation for for adaptation, you know, because you just say, well, of course, like if you live in a cold climate, you're going to get adapted to the cold. That makes logical sense. But when you ask, why do you adapt? You know, you, you, that could be an explanation for that. So you increase your brown fat, activate it, and that keeps you warmer. And that's what creates the adaptation. Yeah. On, on the, on the topic of sort of adaptation to cold environments, um, it, it's not only um, not only sort of dependent on on the degree of brown fat, but it's it's also just all of the mitochondria in the body as well, because you have different types of mitochondria, um, and people, I mean, these are hereditary sort of um, adaptations. So you have ones which are they're they're referred to as more uncoupled. So um, people from like colder climates, like Northern Europe, Europe, Russia. Um, these sorts of um, haplotypes, they call them, the people with these genes, they're more uncoupled. And so uncoupled means that basically when you produce energy in the mitochondria, um, you use food, it turn it in, basically take electrons from food and you make ATP. But what happens when you uncouple mitochondrial respiration, what that means is that you you take electrons from food, but you don't produce ATP you produce heat instead. Um, and so this is this is really important for people living in cold climates because all of the food that they eat, they don't want it to turn into energy. They want some of it or more of it to turn into heat. Um, and so typically white people um, will have more uncoupled mitochondria, whereas people who, um, who live in or their, their ancestry come from more temperate conditions, um, they will have more more tightly coupled mitochondria, which means that they don't produce as much heat. Um, and this is just as a general rule. It, it's you know, of course, it's very individual, um, but it you know, it comes down to this this being loosely coupled or tightly coupled. And so the the, the interesting thing about brown fat is that it contains um, a protein called thermogenin. Um, and what this is, it's, it's called an uncoupling protein. What it means is that brown fat, when its mitochondria are working, it's producing, it's taking all of the energy from that's stored in the body and it's producing loads of heat. Uh, it barely produces any ATP whatsoever. So when you take this in, into consideration, you think of how people want to lose weight. Well, it's 
I mean, uncoupling is like the best way that you can lose weight because you're taking all of the energy from food and you're not using it. You're basically burning it at a much faster rate to produce loads of heat. Um, and so it would be a great way for people who are obese. I mean, this is probably why cold therapy is so good for weight loss um, is because it uses up so much energy and you don't store any of it. It also explain, explains, or it might help to explain anyway, why um, cold therapy seems to, <clears throat> excuse me, benefit people um, regardless of what diet they're on, to a certain extent anyway. Um, mm. Because I guess it's the brown fat, apparently it's drawing um, triglycerides from the blood, sugar from the blood. It basically just fuels itself on anything. And, you know, I can see how that, the benefits of cold therapy, if we can attribute some of those at least to to um, increase in brown fat and the uncoupled mitochondria, then maybe, you know, that's that's why cold therapy seems to be kind of uh, good across the board. Well, I think it works in a similar way to calorie restriction as well. Mm. So um, there's there's a basically one of the reasons why um, even if like mitochondria outside of the brown fat tissue um, sometimes when there's too much energy coming in and they don't know what to do with it or it's um, it's not that they don't know what to do with it it's basically that there's too many um, reactive oxygen species being produced so so what happens is is it has two options it can either keep, keep producing ATP um, and produce loads of reactive oxygen species and essentially kill kill the whole cell, or what it can do is it can trigger these uncoupling proteins and basically um, start producing all this heat energy without producing any reactive oxygen species whatsoever. Um, and so it's like a protective mechanism, but a similar thing happens in calorie restriction. So there's all this information about intermittent fasting and calorie restriction and why um, going you know, a couple days without food has such a beneficial effect is because the body is sort of um, given time uh, given time to adapt to a situation where there is not a lot of reactive oxygen species produced, and so it can um, it can sort of regenerate. Yeah. Hmm. So, I, I, if that makes any sense. Well, one of our chatters has asked um, where how you can consume brown fat, like what meats may contain it. Um, I think it's important to point out that it's not really that you, you are consuming brown fat. It's that you are producing it. Yeah. So the fat that you're getting from meats and stuff like that, it, it, it generally isn't brown fat, I wouldn't think anyway. Um, but it's, it's more about um, finding ways to kind of promote its um, uh, production in your own body. Yeah, and brown fat isn't, doesn't live in a, in, a, in a mammal where you would take cuts of meat right like generally i mean it's not like you heard of get... getting the brown fat slice off of a cow no, I right, yeah and I, to be honest though, i don't know the answer to that i'm not sure where i know in humans that brown fat tends to accumulate around the back like between the shoulder blades and uh and on the shoulders mm-hmm. and the chest i think as well yeah besides human and mouse studies i've never seen no. any studies concerning brown fat and other animals and I don't know that there would necessarily be any benefit to consuming it either. I Maybe might be wrong we about need that. to ask a cannibal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. 
That could be a new one of the articles we read had suggested that consuming the sleep hormone melatonin may control weight gain by stimulating, and they called it beige fat. Yeah. Yeah, beige fat is a little bit different from brown fat. I'm not 100% sure what the difference is. I think (laughs) beige fat is kind of like a... a, um, Intermediary? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of, it's not white fat, it's not brown fat, but it's kind of somewhere in between. And it's not as beneficial as Mm -hmm. the brown fat itself. But it still has Mm -hmm. metabolic advantages. Yeah. Yeah. Hope that cleared it out. (laughs) (laughs) Completely. Would it be fair to say that there's, uh, and I'm not being cheeky here, but like a, a spectrum of, of fat, you know, between white fat and, and brown fat that you would have, kind of like with water, right, where we have this transitionary stage, stage mm-hmm. of easy water? Uh, no, I think there's it. only three no. very clearly delineated types. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I, I don't actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense, actually, Jonathan. I think yeah. that's probably the case. So to answer the the chatter's question, start cold therapy would be a good way to start. Go ketogenic. Mm -hmm. There's some other cheats. Yeah, there's a couple of cheats out there. Yeah. One helpful thing. The intermittent fasting. Well, that's not really cheating because it's hard. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about pills here. Yeah, pills. Type a drug that's actually an overactive bladder drug, but has also been found to activate brown fat. Mm-hmm. And it's like they did this study where they gave um, – it wasn't a huge study. I think it was only 12 participants. But they gave them um, – they kind of measured their brown fat, gave them this drug once, and then measured it again. And they had increased – like their resting me- metabolic rate um, was burning 203 more calories per day. It's kind of like a super pill. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. A side effect super pill. Right. Maybe. Yeah. I'm sure that's side effect. It probably dries you out or something like all the other bladder drugs do. Mm. I know yeah. I know there's a couple other things. Um I don't know if they necessarily increase brown fat, but they do increase something that does basically the same thing as brown fat, which is uncouple uh the mitochondria and one of those is nicotine. <clears throat> oh. Um Another one is, I think, caffeine. <laughs> wow. Keep going. Um, keep going. <laughs> another one <Chocolate>. is... <laughs> possible. Uh, as- aspirin. Aspirin is one. That oh, uncouples really? the mitochondria. Um, and another... We said melatonin. Exercise. Exercise does this. Um, you get really hot when you exercise. And uh, but yeah, mel- on the subject of melatonin, I think the studies were people who took exogenous mel- melatonin, so they actually took it in pill form. Mm-hmm. But I would say that if you want to maximize melatonin, just sleep properly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, because there's so many research studies coming out about how a lack of sleep leads to obesity, metabolic syndrome, insulin yeah. resistance, the lot. You know, so. I mean, when you understand, like, melatonin is just so important. It's a potent antioxidant, and, you know, we've just seen that it increases brown fat as well. I mean, you know, just get to sleep. Yeah, make sure you get sunlight during the day and you're not exposing yourself to blue light at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that early morning sunlight, right, in in your eyes is important to stimulate melatonin. The ocular melatonin. melatonin, yeah. So this well, is my new also... excuse for going fishing in the morning. I need to increase my melatonin. 
<laughs> There's also something called ursolic acid, and it's found in apple peels. Mm-hmm. I guess you can get it in supplement form, and it increases uh, brown fat production, and it increases muscle mass, mm-hmm. so they say. Yeah. It's another miracle supplement. Yeah. <laughs> that you have to try for yourself uh, to really believe. But yeah. I think you have to take it for up to like eight weeks before mm. you notice anything. And how many pounds of apple peels a day do you think you'd have to eat together? Yeah, I was just going to say, can you just eat the apple about, peels and not that apple? Apparently, bodybuilders swear by it. Hmm. Mm. But they swear by a lot of things. That's true. Yeah. yeah. One quick note on the cold therapy to that to that uh, chatter. If it's something that you want to try, but it's like too shocking or you're nervous about it, you can start slow by um, eating a bowl. Uh, say like a like a fruit bowl, you know, like a foot and a half in diameter or something like that, and then put ice water in it, so some cold water, and then put some ice in there, and then um, submerge your face in the water, and you have so many nerve endings in your face that that exposure to the cold is kind of like a primer for the mm-hmm. rest of your body. You won't be able to do it for very long at first, I, uh, well, unless you're different, but I, I tried this, and, you know, at first blush, it was like 10, 15 seconds, and I had to pull it out like, oh, you know, but uh, after a few times, you get to leave it in there ostensibly as long as you can hold your breath. And at that point, you can kind of be confident that you can take a cold bath and not be as shocked as you would before. So, or I've got even some just turn, turn the shower to cold for a few minutes. But that's so shocking because the impact of the water on your skin is what's really awful about that, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It makes it worse in my mind. Well, some people swear by that gradual approach, like they'll start with a hot shower and then gradually turn the hot down until it gets more and more cold. Sure, sure. I think that's just prolonging the agony. (laughs) (laughs) But when I first started out doing the cold baths, I would sit in the empty bathtub first and then turn on the cold water and let it slowly Jeez. rise up my body. And uh, then I was like, forget all that. Just fill up the tub and get in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jump in, start the timer. <laughs> Jump out. When you have an opportunity to work on controlling your breathing, right? When you jump in. It's immediately um, I don't like... jump. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> we used to do that. I mean, I guess not so much as I used to, but uh, I live near Lake Superior, which is a consistent like 42 to 48 degrees, give or take. And uh, you can jump in there and it's a shocker. But I'm mm-hmm. surprised that none of us ever got a heart attack from doing that. It's because you were young and robust, more likely. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like that polar bear challenge, too. They cut a hole in the ice. Oh, God. The Russians do that, right? Yeah, just just be careful with the cold baths, um, or just don't put ice in the bath because I, <laughs> you know, I experienced like two weeks of urticaria on my chest because well. I got in the bath and put a couple of kg of ice in there and uh, was in a lot of pain for like two weeks. So I think wow. you just have to sort of go slowly, go slowly yeah, I've on done it. Done that too, but it didn't last what? for two weeks. But the thing is, you can't feel it because your body goes so numb from the cold. You can't feel that there's an ice cube sitting on your, yeah. your skin. Uh-huh. Yeah. What's your, what, what was the condition you mentioned, Elliot? Uh, urticaria, I think it's okay. called. Yeah. It's basically like a rash. Um, uh, and my, I think my skin was numb for like a couple of days after that. <laughs> like I couldn't wow. feel anything. Mine like Tim said, 
you, you can't feel it. Like, there's the pain, and then it just disappears, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm cold adapted. And then you realize, <laughs> like, a couple hours later that you probably just did yourself some real real harm, you know? Well, do you find that that lasted at all? Like, you, all your feeling is back, or do you have a little bit no. less? Yeah, the feeling, the feeling's okay from what I can feel yeah. now. I mean, I'm, I've got my fingers on my chest and it feels pretty sturdy, so <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can feel everything. But yeah, just that technically just be like take a, it easy. It'd be like a, um, a nerve damage, right? Possible. Yeah, I get. I guess. Oh, um, <laughs> I think that's know, what that's happens what... if you just jump into things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? They have this cryosculpting thing that women go to to freeze off fat on different parts of their body. And Mm. I think it actually freezes or damages the fat cells in some way. And they have a problem with numbness for a while, but it goes away. And allegedly, the part of the body they treat it actually decreases in its fat content. So I'm not 100% sure what the mechanism is, but it does something damaging to the fat cells. And I guess it just takes a while for the body to clear out all the debris, hence the time mm-hmm. recuperating. Well, um, speaking of body sculpting. Oh, oh wait, that way, that just... <laughs> what? <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, I was just going to... Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was on... It was on the. I'm sorry, Doug. It was on the previous thing. I, I was going to add it in before, but I was just going to say um, I've got some good news for everyone, and that is that um, that chocolate does increase um, uncoupling in the mitochondria. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a research study here that says um, there's a section of cocoa powder which is called flavin three ol. And um, it increases mitochondrial biogenesis in skeletal muscle in mice, and it also increases uncoupling. So, yeah. Yes, in mice. Sweet. So, cigarettes, coffee, and chocolate. Coffee and chocolate. That's my new diet. (laughs) I wonder if it depends on the quality of the chocolate. We're not talking about a Hershey's bar here, are we? Right. We're talking about cocoa, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking of chocolate, <laughs> um, shit. <laughs> How about those tattoos? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if somebody loves chocolate so much, they might be tempted to get a chocolate tattoo. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Good segue. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, some of the... Articles we looked into this week were about the dangers of tattooing. And uh, one of them in particular was talking about how um, apparently the ink from tattoos will actually collect in the lymph nodes and color those lymph nodes. Um, Apparently this is something they've known for a while now. Um, It isn't new. But apparently what is new is that they've also found that the lymph nodes tend to expand when they've kind of taken this ink in. So... I mean, the lymphatic system is kind of a waste removal system for the body. Um, So I guess it kind of makes sense that, you know, the the ink from the tattoos, you know, over time would be kind of slowly being um, kind of fed into the body as your body's kind of breaking down cells and kind of reproducing cells. And that stuff's got to go somewhere. So 
the fact that it's kind of collecting in the lymphatic tissue is not really that surprising, but um, the fact that it could have such a negative effect maybe is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and there's <clears throat> there's a danger of toxicity from the heavy metals in some of the inks, to be clear. Yep. Uh, there are forms of black ink that are not as bad for you. You know, they're mm-hmm. not packed with heavy metals. You're more concerned with bright colors and stuff. Um, I, I'm concerned with that. I have a tattoo that I got years ago that has some bright colors in it, so I wonder about it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But try to stay on top of things, stay on top of detoxing and immune health and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, apparently, actually, some black ink contains um, iron oxides. So that's kind of uh, a, a connection for yeah. the iron I, we were talking about before. So if you're me, trying to keep your we... iron levels low, you should avoid getting black ink that has iron oxides in it. Sure. Do I win the prize? I remember when we were when we were talking about the show <laughs> beforehand that you, you, I think, Doug, you had mentioned that it was like the... Uh, like uh, Yakuza, essentially, like uh, Asian gang members, Japanese or Chinese gang members who get the full body tattoos, like from top to bottom, uh, have been known to die of liver failure. Like that's a common thing. So, but oh, I, uh, that wasn't to be fair, I didn't. But... Oh, that was okay. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody mentioned that. Huh. <laughs> um, yeah, that it contributed wow. to that. But I would imagine that, you know, at a certain point, it's just like anything, there's, there's levels. You know, if you have a, a little sunflower tattoo in your ankle, it's not like <laughs> being like, you know, a <clears throat> gang member is covered from head to toe. <laughs> no. <laughs> I have a few, actually. Uh, yeah. Well, you, if you think about it, the skin is constantly needing to detoxify, right? So mm-hmm. it would seem like with the ink that it's blocking those pathways. And it was actually me that said that, Jonathan, about the Yakuza. Uh, Tattoos. There's a um, hepatitis and then ultimate death by liver failure. But it would seem like the body has to work extra hard to excrete through the skin if there's ink in there. And they were even saying in one of the articles about nanoparticles mm-hmm. in, in the inks as well and traveling sure. to the limb. So that may be why because, I don't know, we have a picture on the... Um, on the show description of somebody who's completely tattooed from head to toe, and it would seem that their body has to work much harder to detoxify because the skin yeah. is no longer open to let out toxins. Yeah. yeah, I think this is something that's important to point out too. That it's there, you know, on the levels of things that will, like, pretty sure they'll kill you, versus other things. Like when you look at old, you know, there's a lot of older people who have tattoos, maybe not covered head to toe. I'm just saying like have like war veterans that have tattoos over their forearms, you know, that live Mm. into their eighties and nineties, that kind of thing. But it's the point I think being that it's going to make your health harder to maintain over time. Yeah. Well, it's adding to the burden. Yeah. Right. Like the overall burden that, that you kind of, your body has to deal with on a daily basis. If you've got kind of a slow leaching of heavy metals and titanium dioxide and all other kinds of crap from the ink in your tattoo, it's just like another nail in the coffin. Another thing to deal with. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if these people who are covered from head to toe with ink have trouble properly absorbing sunlight. Ah, maybe. Could be. Yeah, that's Could interesting. Be. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I remember reading something about that. It was something Jack Cruz posted on Facebook. I think. Mm. He was saying how it um, 
I can't, I can't remember what it was. The the thing that concerns me, especially with the nanoparticles, is it kind of it's not the same, but it kind of just reminds me of vax. You know, you, you're introducing like this mm-hmm. foreign substance, sort of bypassing the natural mm-hmm. the natural defenses. You know, the digestive tract and the lungs and and mm-hmm. and things. And okay, yeah, you would go say you cut yourself in the wild, you would get mud and stuff in it, but are there nano nanoparticles of aluminium and metals and things in mud? Probably, Probably not. Yeah. You know, so so what sort of effect is this gonna have? And and I think the point about the, the overall toxic burden is is really important as well because we're not we're not living in the same environment as we were even in the eighties and nineties. You know, it's mm-hmm. just getting worse mm-hmm. and worse and worse and worse. And mm. and especially, I think maybe maybe even the the inks and stuff that they're using now. Um, I, I mean, I dread to think what they what they could potentially be contaminated with. When you consider all of the toxins that are in our environment, whether it be like glyphosate or mm. you know anything, all of these man-made things, BPA and stuff. Mm-hmm. Perhaps sure. thirty, forty years the years ago, maybe the 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 ink that was used may not have been as bad as it possibly is today. I mean, I don't know. That's just really speculative. But overall, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just concerning. Like the the old, uh, the old style of tapping tattoos, like with, Mm. uh, with sharp sticks kind of on a lever that you would tap with your hand over time. So you essentially, you're, you're doing what, you know, vibratory tattoo gun does, but tap, 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 tap like that. And that they use, um, wood ash, you know, for the ink. Mm in those yeah so which and other like roots me, it seems like. oh and other roots yeah well like the polynesians have been doing it for a long time and they use um, bone to do it and they that's where tattoo it's tatao so it's the tapping uh-huh. that they would use um you know i mean this has been going on for hundreds of years and it has a very different significance and we won't get into the discussion of tattoo significance but it's it's not you know, they fade, obviously, because it's a natural earth substance. Right. It turns right. lighter over years. Yeah. Yeah. And the body knows how to get rid of a lot of these things. Like in the bone, it's, you know, calcium and phosphorus and this stuff. And these are just basic minerals that the body uses every single day. So it's sort of it knows how to how to process these things. But all of the man-made stuff, like the glyphosate and BPA, and the, all the all the different things we've spoken about in previous shows, the body doesn't know what to do with those. So, yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> it's just you know, it's overburdened. Yeah. yeah, I think that's very true. Yeah. Well, so what is there any? Let me just put this out oh, there. Is there any valid reason yeah. to get a tattoo? Well, it depends on how you define valid, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. Because <laughs> uh, I would think it's a – I mean, uh, coming from a person who has tattoos and mm-hmm. also understanding their their nature, I, I know that they're – you know, that, I'm inc- that I have increased my burden on my body. Um, I, I wouldn't argue any of them for – like, I had to get this. You know what I mean? Yeah. That that's just doesn't even come into it. It's completely personal preference – uh, personal symbolism, meaning, you know, things like that. Some people it's, it's aesthetic, like they just want to look cool. So you get a cool flame, that kind of thing. But if you define valid as something that's necessary, 
I, would, I don't think there's any argument for that at all. Well, yeah, I guess so. Maybe it wasn't well put, yeah. but I guess I guess I'm I'm just thinking that given that there is this risk of toxicity, and I just remembered that actually I just found out this week that one of the Almond brothers actually died from getting a tattoo. Um, hmm. And I don't think that's common, but nonetheless, I mean, there is no. some risk involved. Yeah. But yeah, on he the had other hepatitis hand, he, too. It was hepatitis. I think oh, the hepatitis that. came from the tattoo, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about Greg Almond. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> But um, and I guess on the other hand, you've got um, the huge, super huge rise in the popularity of tattoos. Um, yeah. And I mean, obviously, your average person who's going out and getting a tattoo is probably not considering at all that it might actually be harmful to them in some way. And in, in you know, no. as far as like toxic burden goes or something along those lines, they're probably not even thinking about like you know possible pathogens being. Um, and you know, I think most tattoo parlors are pretty um, pretty clean these days, and they've, they've kind of worked on that. But uh, Nonetheless, I guess, like, given the risk, what's the reward? Looks yeah. Cool. Right. I, well, not I that it that really matters, but the, F, the FDA doesn't regulate it at all either, you know? So there's no sort of research into what's going into it, if it's safe, is it clean? So, mm-hmm. I mean, not Yeah, there the are some inks that are just approved for cosmetic use, not for injecting into the skin. Yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that I think the ink is a big issue. I, I wouldn't worry about hygiene, honestly, getting a modern tattoo. If you go to yeah. a shop that's clearly good, they, they have to be a certified uh, medical facility hmm. in order to do that legally anyway. Right. So, yeah, but as far as the inks themselves, yeah, that's a big concern. I'm, yeah. I'm, I was more trying to get into the psychological aspect of tattoos. Right. I, I think, clumsily, I think it's a, <laughs> I, I don't want to, I don't want to fall into trying to defend myself. I, I feel like it's, it's a, a lot of it is purely selfish, completely self-serving mm. either, either I think this looks cool and I want other people to see it. So they think I'm cool mm. or, or it's like a meaning that I want to remind myself of. <clears throat> and I like that implementation of reminding myself with a tattoo yeah that is also completely self-serving you know yeah well yeah i mean and and i don't i don't want to try and um come across like i was like you know pointing at you specifically jonathan i just kind of more talking in general but you did have uh sorry go ahead oh no i was just saying i'm not offended at all i i I feel like i can draw on my my experience with that and having kind of thought through it um but you know in certain cases i gotta say like i have uh uh, the V mask on my calf with the Veni Veri Visum Vici mm. quote around the edge of it. And, it, you know, part of that was I really liked that message, but I also thought it looked really cool. It, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there you have it. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is a lot of that kind of um, identifying in a certain way, like kind of like announcing to the world, like, you know, the same kind of thing as if you had something written on your T-shirt, but it's a little bit more like hardcore and more like, <laughs> you know, permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of like, like it's for group identification to a certain extent, I think. And I, I know that like, you know, peer pressure probably comes into that. Not that any, anybody's necessarily saying you have to get a tattoo or you're out of our group, but it's like a little bit more subtle than that. Like, and, and people kind sure. of want to identify and it's usually kind of like an anti-establishment type of, uh, um, kind of message, um, or it often is, um, yeah. But it's it's interesting because we had a, an article that we looked into um, called the psychology of tattoo acquisition, and it was talking about kind of a study, but it was a very kind of loose study. I think again there was there was a, a, only a small number of participants, and they were it was basically just done as a, like a, a, an interview, and kind of like talking to people about their tattoos, why they got them, what their 
early um, childhood life was like, and it seemed like it came kind of came up uh, talked about this this idea that tattoos are kind of almost armoring in a way that you kind of um, that by people by getting these tattoos they're kind of like it it's um, kind of like a mask. Yes, yeah, I think they even use that uh, that term. Um, it's kind of a way of, of kind of, uh, protecting. It's like, you know, I, I've done this to myself. Um, so that's what I want to put out there. I don't yeah, want don't to put out there. judge me for the abuse that I suffered. Judge me for the abuse that I caused myself is one of the things that they said in the article. Yeah. They also said that it was kind of like a presentation of the false self to protect the wound itself. So a lot of these people, even though it was a very small studies, they had like, divorce, separation, one of their parents died, or there was abuse or neglect in their childhood. There's a lot of traumatic events, but that doesn't explain. Like, lots of people have traumatic events in their childhood, and they don't get tattoos. But lots of people do get tattoos. <laughs> that is true, but there's also a difference between a tattoo somebody gets, say they get a sunflower on their ankle or something, that you could argue, oh, that's just for my personal enjoyment. But then there's people whose whole body is covered mm. in tattoos. And when I see mm-hmm. that, I think, well, what's wrong with them? Yeah. <laughs> what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. I think that too, because I mean, there, there's only so far that a person would be go, like would go if they are kind of a, a, a normal functioning individual to um, just kind of go for group identification. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure that in some cases it's just a matter of kind of one-upmanship and like, it's like, well... My buddy got this tattoo, so I'll get a bigger tattoo, and then they get, you know, I'm going to get another tattoo, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that there's actually an addictive quality to it as well. I mean, so many people I know who have tattoos have talked about once they got one, they wanted another, and then they wanted another. So there's 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 obviously kind of a, it seems to escalate in some way. And in That's fact, true. in this article, they even said that um, all the people they talked to um, said that they didn't plan on stopping getting tattoos, and that they you know, until they ran out of skin, they'd basically keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, like, people who are a little, I think, overboard with it, too. I mean, uh, I, I certainly don't ever intend to get a neck tattoo, you know, <laughs> or anything like, yeah, you know, like the backs of my hands, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, basically, I want to be able to retain the ability to put on some nice clothes and look like a professional. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the articles that we looked at about tattoos, uh, the author was saying that one of the reasons why a lot of people find excessive tattooing repellent is because it's kind of like this narcissistic attention-seeking, hey, look at me, make a comment on how I look kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and totally. And I think that in, is in it, a yeah. certain way that can be true. And I've come across a lot of people, too, who <clears throat> would get these kind of like – very, I, I don't know the right word. I was going to say ostentatious, but I don't think that's really the right word. Just very dramatic tattoos, you know, things that are that are very kind of, like you can't help but see it, you know what I mean? Like as, as soon as they walk mm-hmm. into the room, it's like it's the first thing you're going to notice. It's like they but then, want someone yeah. to comment. But at the same time, I knew, I've known several people who didn't like being questioned about their tattoos. Hmm. And it's like... You know, put it. It's, it's like walking into some place in like a duck costume or something like that, and like, don't ask me about the costume. <laughs> it's like, well, it's kind of a passive aggressive kind of thing. It just seemed kind of weird. Well, it's, I wonder if it plays into uh, some of kind of like the radical progressive thinking. In which case, you can 
proudly display your identification with something, anything that mm-hmm. nobody's allowed to ask you about. Yeah. You know, so it seems like almost like a little cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I don't know. There's definitely, I feel like tattoos come in, aside from the obvious health risks that we've discussed, the psychological aspect of it comes into a whole spectrum of different types of people. Like mm. you said, there are people who get them like, it's just look at me, look at me all day long, you know, mm-hmm. or, um, you know, I see uh, popular with uh, younger women now is like, you know, a strap shirt, like a tank top or something with like full chest and sleeves yeah. tattoos. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. their identity kind of. Yeah. Know? And and on the topic of it, um, it was it was mentioned before how it was kind of like an anti-establishment thing. Hmm. Well, when you when you see some of them nowadays, and it's like uh, death and destruction and like weird yeah. goblin baby things with axes <laughs> in their heads and stuff. <laughs> it's like. It's like what I mean. How I mean, it, it just. But it, it, I, I personally don't understand it. I mean, it's like it's completely anti all um, sort of. I guess. I guess you would say. I mean, it's if a ugly. Christian saw it, yeah. If a Christian saw it, they would say that it was Satanism. Yeah. You know, because right. it, it's very similar to what is known by Christians as Satan satanistic yeah. or whatever you call it it's it's okay. and i i yeah i tend to think yeah satanic that's the word um and i kind of you know i think of it from a really speculative level and stuff but i kind of think okay so what what kind of information does that carry with it you know if mm-hmm. you're you're looking at this every day and if this is sort of imprinted on your body then yeah. what what energy does that carry with it? What you know, what sort of thing does that draw to you? And mm-hmm. it's just yeah. there's so many things that that you could think about. Um, you know, it can't really be proven necessarily, but you know, it's things that I think are important to consider. Um, and you know, it's I don't. Wait, really, so I think yeah, to your point, you say that because symbols are very powerful. Like if yeah. we're practicing Reiki, there's the Reiki symbols. And you're actually transferring that energy into somebody when they mm-hmm. get attuned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so just imagine, like, if you're actually imprinting an evil-looking symbol onto your body, what does that mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes me think of the um, the experiments that um, – uh, I forget his name. Anyway, the guy who did the experiments where he wrote the messages on the on the water, mm-hmm. on the, the, the container yeah. with the water, and then examined the structure under a microscope. Yeah. And you think yeah, about yeah, how yeah. much of the body is actually composed of water, so it's like, yeah, you know, putting a putting a symbol on on a body, it, it seems like it would carry a lot of information. Totally, yep. I, I think it's to Elliot to your point about that. It's really important, and I feel bad too when I see people who have done that, you know, to the uh, to the detriment of their own kind of worldview. Where they, if that makes any sense, where they where they might have thought they identified with it at one point, and then like change mm-hmm. their minds later. Uh, if you are going to get a tattoo, I think it's really important to take a long time, like at least a year, at least, mm. and think about the meaning of it, you know, understand what it means to the rest of your life. Is that something that you want to embrace? Like, yeah, yeah it's super important. Uh, it's yeah. interesting, like the whole Christian thing, because I grew up in a really heavily, uh, you know, Protestant Christian family and tattoos were not necessarily seen as evil bad looking tattoos would have been like of a devil face or something. But in general, it was just kind of like, just like that was part of the world over here that you didn't want to get into. 
Mm-hmm. And my first tattoo was my, our family coat of arms. And that was a fun discussion because it was like something they couldn't morally or ethically argue with, hmm. you know, but then we discussed like, well, do you really want that? And it was like, yeah, I want to, I want to see this. I want to remember this, you know, that hmm. I'm part of my family where our history comes from. So it can be, I think, valid in certain cases. Again, aside from the obvious toxic burden you're putting on your body, but yeah. purely psychologically, but then it, it <clears throat> can easily be taken too far. Or you can, you know, the classic example of a girlfriend's name who you were with for six months. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I actually um, have a friend who um, <clears throat> always looked a bit older than he actually was, and ended up getting all these tattoos when he was like 14 years old, and it was all like zombies coming out of graves and like flaming skulls and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. And oh my God, does he regret them? Like, yeah, yeah. And now he's actually um, a social worker and has to cover them all up. Always wearing long sleeves. <laughs> Mm-hmm. There's a funny, if I may do a quick aside, that's kind of, I'll try to do long story short. So there's this group called the, that people may or may not have heard of in the U.S. called the Proud Boys. Uh, oh, yeah. And they're wrapped up in the whole social justice kind of war right now. Uh, a lot of people call them alt-right. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm agnostic about whatever their views are. But I heard a story <clears throat> that I thought was interesting that one of their main founders is an African-American guy. And they are seen as being racist, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not 100%. But this guy became uncomfortable with the levels of racism that did include it, that did get included in the group. And there were people who were legitimately racist who were being brought into the group. Mm-hmm. And after a certain amount of time in this interview, so part of being a quote-unquote proud boy is you have to get a tattoo that says proud boy. <laughs> so he so he got one. And, and now in this interview, he was just like, I ate this thing removed. You know, it sucks, uh-huh. but I got to get it taken off because I'm just not with, you know. So uh, that's an interesting case, too. You might ideologically identify with something and then realize that's not the, the direction you want to go. Yeah, which I think is one of the dangers of tattoos, aside from all the physical stuff. It's just that we are beings who are constantly changing, like all the time. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's like to, to get something kind of permanently etched on your body. It just seems so short-sighted. Like it really – I mean I think that's actually one of the things that saved me from ever getting a tattoo even when it was like cool and I had friends who were getting them. It's kind of like I never could think of anything that was universal enough that I would want it on my body for the rest of my life. I just mm, couldn't sure. think of anything. It's just like I, I don't I yeah. don't know. Like, like you know, I, I could see how much I had changed in the time – like in my short life. And it's like, well, you know, when I'm like, you know, 60 – what you know? Am I, I still going to feel the same way about this? And I was like, yeah. no, I don't. I don't think yeah. I will. How cool is that tattoo on your buff bicep going to look when you're seventy year old years old and all flabby? <laughs> yeah, and it goes green and like <laughs> faded, and it just looks like someone's got a paintbrush and sort of just put it on your arm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there was so a. Tattoo, uh, uh, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say there was a question in the comment section, and it was, "What effect would metallic ink have on the human biomagnetic field?" Mm. I thought that's a really good question. Um, mm-hmm. Hard to say, but I can't imagine that it doesn't have an effect. Uh, I think Jack Cruz has spoken about um, heavy metal toxicity being like um, like an antenna for EMFs. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're exposed to things like Wi-Fi and stuff, even though it's non-ionizing radiation, it still sort of energizes atoms of metal. 
Um, mm-hmm. Like, for instance, when you put, uh, like, a, say, a metal fork into a microwave, you'll see it sparks. Mm-hmm. So he likens it to that, and he says that he thinks that it probably does have lots of effects. Maybe even that's one of the reasons why EMF is so harmful is maybe because the body contains loads of metal ions, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's potentially interacting with those. Um, and so I can't imagine that it has a good effect on the biomagnetic field. No. I had heard that once about uh, uh, piercings too, but this was years ago and it was in the context of like an energy worker who may mm-hmm. or may, not, may or may not have been kind of, you know, woo-woo about their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, it stuck out in my mind that they were like, you shouldn't have earrings in your ears because it throws off your energy field. Yeah. So. No, I've heard similar things from like acupuncturists and things like that. Mm. Well, do you think that tattoos can be emblematic of any underlying depression that people might have? <laughs> yeah. Another segue? Not that great. That was a good one. That <laughs> was. In my case, I would say personally, no. Even when I look back on them, the ones that I got, I mean, I really don't think so. But I think that it can happen for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I know a guy who, of course, will remain anonymous who has the word broke tattooed across his neck in the front. Oh. You know, See? and that's just like, you can't have been feeling super happy when that went down. No. You know? <laughs> and you kind of are like, if it really does carry any kind of weight, which I think that it probably does, like, I think like, you know, having that written on yourself, like you're basically, you know, confirming it to yourself yeah. constantly, yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or even worse, what if his neck literally breaks? There you go. Oh, you just yeah. blew my mind. <laughs> Going deep. Going deep. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we do want to talk about um, depression a little bit, there was uh, one of our articles I thought was interesting was um, chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. Uh, fanning the flames of depression. I suppose you could connect that with tattoos because if you had a ton of tattoos, especially with like some high visibility color inks, uh, that would that could contribute. Probably would 100% contribute to inflammation. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the levels would have to be. You know, I mean, if you have one, is that doing it? Is it contributing 0.0008% or something like that? You know. Yeah, but if that um, was the straw that broke the camel's back, then. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I find it interesting because I, I definitely have experienced this in my own life um, more so cognizantly after I changed my diet the first time and then have since lapsed a number of times and, and have that experience of eating crappy food and knowing what it feels like to feel good. Mm. Uh, that there, there's, mm-hmm. It's a no-brainer connection that you, um, if you're eating high sugar, high refined carbohydrates, processed foods, uh, and uh, it's more, even more so if you're not exercising, uh, you're just going to feel bad. And you're more prone to anxiety, uh, depression. Uh, you know, it's totally true. And that all is, of course, uh, as you know, our listeners would imagine, uh, causes of chronic inflammation. Uh, you know, if you're putting crap into your body, it's yeah. just going to continue to be inflamed, like all over, all the tissue, the brain, everything. Yeah. And it's funny because it is kind of controversial to, you know, to us it isn't because it's kind of like, well, of course, you know, inflammation can be the cause of, of any number of different problems. So why not mood? You know, it, it just yeah. it just mm-hmm. makes sense. But, you know, to to mainstream like, you know, psychiatry or something like that, they it's like, no, 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 it's a it's a, a brain imbalance and you need to take this medication to correct that imbalance. It has nothing to do with um, with uh, inflammation or anything. But even like 
in uh, herbal medicine, um, St. John's wort is something that's often used for depression. And apparently, like, scientists have been looking into this for a long time, and they're kind of like, can't kind of get out of the box of serotonin deficiency, which is like, oh, yeah, you know, depression is caused by a lack of serotonin. And they're like looking for the mechanism by which St. John's wort actually um, increases serotonin, and they can't find it. But the thing is, St. John's wort is a powerful anti-inflammatory, particularly to the nervous system. So it's like that is more likely the mechanism of action than actually causing uh, serotonin to increase. Um, Yeah. And the question is, do you, would you would you even want to increase serotonin? Because well, yeah. <clears throat> there's a, there's some research which which suggests that a lot of the benefits of taking um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, uh, a lot of the benefits from those are not the increase in serotonin, but actually the body's response to the excess serotonin (laughs) so it's not so so what you find is you see um massive increases in as a response um of something called allopregnenolone and this is in the brain and this is a protective steroid hormone um you know it, it basically protects against all types of stress um and so they they showed that basically by serotonin uh, there was one paper which which plainly said it that no, it cannot be the increase in serotonin which increases mood. What it is, it's the allopregnenolone which basically quells down the inflammation. <laughs> so he was he was saying it's an inflammatory thing. It's not serotonin, and he was he, he was actually saying that serotonin is really not all that good whatsoever. It produces similar symptoms to like cocaine. You know, it's, it, it might make you very alert or something, but it's certainly not responsible for a good mood. I mean, it's so reductionistic to say that one neurotransmitter is responsible for, you know, basically preventing depression, I think is, is ludicrous because we, quite frankly, we don't understand neurotransmitters. You know, mm-hmm. to, to say, oh, yeah, you should increase one of them and you'll feel better. I mean, it's completely blindsided. But, um, but yeah, there's just that piece of interesting information as well Hmm. yeah well and it's i mean uh euphoria is not necessarily mood right Uh, that would be kind of a different classification and i know that ssris don't necessarily induce euphoria but i think uh, that you know when you think about drugs like uh, mdma that basically Hmm. suck all the serotonin out of the out of the body and pump it through your brain um that that causes a feeling okay can you guys hear us Anyone there? Should Anyone be, uh, there? Can our chatters hear us now? Let's see. Not again. Hmm. Oh, uh, they can hear us. Go. We got yes. Oh, okay. Good. 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 Yeah, we just our internet connection just just dropped. Dropped. On us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like last week. Yeah. 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 That was bad last week. Well, uh, to the thing about serotonin, I, I think it's uh, um, pretty fascinating. That, uh, just the what you said alone that they that they're not so sure that it's even good, um, because that's like SSRIs are essentially the basis for our entire modern psychiatric industry, right? Psychiatrists being the one who the ones who prescribe, and yeah. psychologists are the ones who have discussions. 
Well, I think that's why this topic had. Yeah, I think that's why this topic hasn't really caught on too. Because again, like we've said many times on this show, is if you can change your diet to deal with your depression, then you don't need all those drugs. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, not that the drugs work anyway, but um, well, exactly. and it's not that there are any tests like you go into a psychiatrist's office and you say, oh, I'm depressed. And they say, OK, let's take you to the lab and we're going to draw up your levels of dopamine and serotonin and see if they fall within right. the normal range. They don't right. know what the normal range is for no. a group of people, let alone an individual. My yeah. regular level of serotonin might be different than everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's all mm-hmm. just a it's just a big joke. It's all just guesswork. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. I can say that I have found uh, certain, uh, for me, notable mental health benefits from supplementing 5-HTP uh, tyrosine mm. uh, and uh, originally um, GABA, but then I stopped doing that because I learned that it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm. Yeah. But it, Certainly, five HTP and, and, and tyrosine. Um, I, I've noticed big benefits from those. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. You know. How, you know I know, so. and I don't think you're the only one either. I think that there is kind of a, a quite a bit of uh, anecdotal evidence out there for taking um, those kind of supplements. To to, and I mean, it's theorized that the reason is because you know you're you're giving your body what it needs to make those neurotransmitters, and that might actually be true. But it's kind of it, again, we're kind of shooting in the dark here. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've taken we'll them say, before, and sometimes they make me groggy during the day, or they mm-hmm. interfere with my sleep at night. So I don't bother mm-hmm. taking those anymore. If I'm sad, I just like to be sad. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think I may be wrong, but basically, well, I know that basically tryptophan is the amino acid that is that is used to produce serotonin, but tryptophan can also be used to um, to make niacin. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, I, I'm i not sure if there is any case of... I'm not sure whether 5-HTP can convert to niacin in the body, um, but I, I'm not sure how much 5-HTP is converted to serotonin. I think that depends on each individual. One thing to consider also is that... Like what Tiff said, different people might have different, um, they might have different levels of this. So it's so hard to sort of generalize and to say this amount is good for everyone or this amount is bad for everyone. Like some people may benefit from more serotonin. Some people may benefit from less. All I know for sure is that the, the picture that is painted by psychiatry is completely bogus. There was a really good article by um, Dr. Kelly Brogan. She's a quite a well-known psychiatrist who tries to use sort of food and um, and sort of natural supplements to treat psychiatric conditions. She she wrote an amazing article on basically debunking the whole serotonin myth. Mm. And she she goes with the same same thing that you know depression is is essentially an inflammatory condition as is like bipolar schizophrenia and all of these different things mm-hmm. but i think here is also really important to to sort of um to clarify or to to sort of define what is depression as well because you know it's kind of like a a, a broad term that people will use just willy-nilly and it's like i don't think i've i've ever experienced proper depression but i think there's uh 
maybe a genuine state of depression, which is just a natural part of human experience, which is what, mm. you know, a state that we use, like, you know, uh, suffering to help us learn and grow as individuals. Mm. But then I think there's also this chronic inflammatory state, which I personally have never felt, but I'm sure many people do feel. And I think it's it's important that we, we sort of separate those two terms, you know, separate the meanings of those two things and try mm. to try to identify which one is the case because you know the, the the natural depression is 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 really important but then the inflammatory depression we don't need it <laughs> you know yeah. so yeah how does someone determine right. when they have that that's a very yeah. good point I, I think that in those cases like you said natural depression where you know there are depressing things that happen every day uh, and in everybody's life um but that i think of like what you might refer to as clinical depression is Yes, a deficiency in neurotransmitters, uh, nutrient deficiency, but in my mind, more so the, uh, what that results in is the inability to think critically about what you're experiencing. Mm. And it's the inability to not identify emotionally with it. And that's what causes the spiral because the world is bleak and there's no way out, you know, mm. and uh, that, yes, that is actually true. Uh, you know, but you can be aware of that and still live your life in kind of a normal, well-adjusted way. Um, but when you get, uh, sucked into it and you're, you know, nutrient deficient and your brain is not working properly, you can't think your way out of it. And that's where people So a feeling stuck, of hopelessness, in other words. Yeah, but over, like, inescapable the, hopelessness, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Or it feels inescapable, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's quite different from situational sadness that you're grieving because a loved one died or there's some life change that's going on. But the clinical depression, in my mind, I think that it is present and persistent mm -hmm. through different mm -hmm. situations that are going on in your life. There's this mm -hmm. inability to experience joy no matter what. Yeah. And then, well, and then there's, you know, like you have the, uh, if you want to refer to it as, as bipolar or whatever, but it, leaving the classification aside for a moment, there are people who have this transition between periods of extreme depression and periods of extreme mania. And if any of our listeners have experience with that or have lived with somebody who, who experiences that, uh, it can be incredibly difficult because you go, you know, from that state of utter hopelessness to a state of, uh, you know, well, mania, pure insanity. You know, there's no logic. It's just uh -huh. impulse. It's just like total reptilian brain, go, go, go kind of. Yeah. So I hope I don't mean to offend anybody, but I think what, what, what makes me, uh, like sad about that for people who have that condition or have perhaps given themselves that condition, albeit unintentionally is the amount of like stress being put on the brain mm -hmm. must be incredible, you know, and just the imbalances mm -hmm. that are shooting back and forth, you know, it's like, it's like a boat that's lilting to one side, 65 degrees and then back to the other side. It's like happening in your mind. Mm -hmm. And to compound that with all these horrendous psychiatric drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and on the other hand, I've, I've, I've known, well, one person who was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia and had fairly bad episodes who is now stable, you know, got married, has kids living normal. Uh -huh. So it can be, uh, it can be worked out. Yeah. So do you think that pets ever get depression? <laughs> Do pets <Good> suffer? <laughs> well, 
I mean, I think anybody who's anybody who's owned a dog knows that they get depressed or they can for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. There's definitely I mean, I a rise in the medicating of dogs with Prozac. Mm. Oh no, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's unbelievable actually. Yeah. I guess if I were to be super analytical about it, I would say that dogs exhibit behavior which implies that they're depressed. <laughs> but <laughs> put a human construct. What about on it. cats? I don't even know what's going. <laughs> no, cats are just like forget that. I don't care. Cats are cats are too arrogant to be depressed. No, they can't. Poor kitty. What about hamsters? Hamsters. (laughs) Caged birds. Oh. Oh sure. Yeah, for sure. So should we go to the uh, pet health segment then? After that masterful segue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Here's Zoya. And welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I would like to share with you a segment of a talk by Dr. Andy Rourke. It's a very important and you could say personal talk, because it gives you a glimpse into daily struggles and inner trepidations veterinarians sometimes have to deal with. But it's not all bad, far from it. What Dr. Andy Rourke says applies to all of us, no matter our profession or way of life. He talks about happiness and about suffering, and how we can choose our suffering and be happy about it. Sounds like something more appropriate to show we had on a topic some time ago, right? Well, as it happens, I stumble upon it now, and it appears to be very important, relevant, and worth sharing. So here it is. Have a great weekend, and don't forget to hug your pet. We struggle with pet owners because we confuse joy and happiness. We think that they're the same thing. We think about those puppies and kittens that come in and the, and, the, and the dogs that chew at our ears and the families that are so thrilled because this is their first pet. Right? We think about the pictures we put on Facebook of us doing our job. We think about the surgery that went so smoothly and so wonderfully and we thought we were going to lose this pet and we didn't because it came back and it was wonderful. Right? That's joy. Those are glimpses and moments and they're great. But we've lost sight of the fact that that's joy. It's meant to be a glimpse. If we look and think that we should be snuggling puppies and kittens all day, we're always going to feel like our lives are not where they should be. We are blessed to feel this joy. But this is not a sustainable state for us to be in. Happiness is a long-term process. And it has ups and downs. And guys, happiness is full of pain. And I don't think our modern society looks at that or feels that. We look at Facebook and we see people celebrating all the time. And if we're not celebrating, we feel like we're missing something. But that's that's misguided. Buddhist philosophy says that life is suffering. That seems so morbid. But it's not. It's liberating. Life is about pain, and that's fine. The best thing that we can do is choose how we suffer. I'm going to try to tell you the story. I apologize if, if my voice cracks. Um, until until 10 days ago, I was the owner of the best dog in the history of the world. His name was Phoenix. He's 15 and a half years old. And, um, he was with me 
when I got married, when I went to vet school, when I went to grad school, both, both of my kids, my first job, my second job, my third job, every, the, the conference I started, the, the, everything. He's been with me. He's been my best friend. I put him to sleep. It was time. It was just time. It was a quality of life thing. Man, it hurts. It sucks. You know that feeling, right? You guys have been there. Here's the thing. Life is suffering. I will take the pain. I will absolutely take the pain of losing him. You know why? Because I got 16 years of joy of being with him, right? Now, I could have chose to suffer differently. I could have not had this dog. And every day there would have been that small amount of pain when I came home to an empty house. Itty bitty. But I will take this pain over that pain any day. That's the price of admission. That's what I choose to accept. We think about our jobs. And we think about the great parts. And we think about all the, all the bad parts, right? The crappy parts. The people that are angry. The people that complain about their bill. Arguing with someone over a $7 nail trim. We think about that. How do you want to suffer? Do you want to suffer with that headache? Or do you want to suffer with the headache that you would have doing something else? Because think about that. I was flying here. I was flying to come here. And the person at the, at the check-in counter next to me at Delta was raising hell. Because she didn't want to pay the $25 bag check fee. She said, no, I have the credit card. I'm getting to check my bag. And the woman behind the counter was very patient and said, but you did get to check your bag for free. And she said, well, he, doesn't, he didn't. And she said, yes, well, it's good for one bag. And she said, well, that's one bag each. And the one behind Delta counter was like, no, it's just, it's just one bag. And she said, I want to talk to the manager. And then she wanted to talk to another manager. And it, it was like, when I left, there was like a horde of Delta people. And the, the CEO was choppering in to talk to this woman. And I think about that poor airline representative and how often this must happen to her. And she has to fight and argue with these people. And no one brings her cookies. <laughs> and she does not get to snuggle a cat or a dog or anything, right? She just gets all the crap stuff. We get a hard time from pet owners because what we do is so darn important. That's why. So how do you want to suffer? Do you want to be unimportant to the point that people don't care? Or do you want to be important to the fact that they do care and we deal with the fallout from people caring, from us doing something that is valuable and meaningful and useful in the world that people care deeply about? That's happiness. Understanding that it's not all joy and kisses and puppy breath, but that's a part of it. So let's hold on to the beautiful parts. So how do you want to suffer? I think this is a pretty good way. It's meaningful and purposeful. And it matters. Happy goats, right? Hide. Suffering goats. <laughs> Well-adjusted goats. <clears throat> Non-inflamed goats. <laughs> Well, thank you, Zoe, very much for that. Uh, and I think uh, if you guys are, are ready, we'll just wrap up for the day. Okay. So I'd like to uh, thank everybody for tuning in to our chat participants. And uh, be sure to tune in to the SOT Radio Show on Sunday at noon Eastern time. Go to radio.sot.net. So 
Uh, thank you, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.